This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. One of the really cool aspects about interviewing so many different people is you find people across the spectrum in many ways, backgrounds, interests, education, and age. And I have featured people later in their lives who have already had a full lifetime of achievements behind them. For example, I have Natan Sharansky recently interviewed. I have not yet released, but we'll be doing that shortly. Someone who's lived a full life, God willing, should continue, but has done so much already. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have people that are really just starting out and yet already have accomplished tremendous things. This week is one such young woman. Adina Lichtman is only recently out of college, a few years ago, three years ago, I believe. But already during her college tenure, she started an organization called Knock Knock Give a Sock, which has quickly become this major institution aimed at alleviating the plight of those experiencing homelessness. I learned a whole lot during this interview. First of all, Adina's enthusiasm and passion is just energizing and infectious. But she really taught me a lot about the stigmas of homelessness and how to think about those in that position, what we can do as a society broadly to help. Interestingly, she is friendly with and has crossed paths with Mayor Kay, who is also this superstar who we interviewed quite a while back, who does a lot as well with people dealing with homelessness, but Adina is taking this on as a major full-time operation, and it's really, really wonderful to learn about, and again, she's coming at this from a very young age still, so exciting to learn about what she's done already, and just to project where she might go in the many decades to come. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media, at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews, you should know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you are listening, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, whatever it may be. Let your friends know as well that this is a great opportunity for them to enjoy some uplifting, inspiring, interesting Jewish content during Corona and beyond. And now to our conversation with Knock Knock Give a Sock founder Adina Lichtman. We are here with Adina Lichtman, the founder of Knock Knock Give a Sock, which is probably the most original and unusual nonprofit name that I've ever heard. And I'm sure we're going to get a sense of why it's named that and what it actually is. But first of all, how are you, Adina? I'm doing good. I think as good as anyone can be under quarantine circumstances. I miss restaurants, bars, friends, but aside from that, we're doing well. Well, for those you you can't listening, you can't see, but Adina is actually sitting outside with a beautiful forested background. So, you know, it's not too, not too shabby for a quarantine. Not bad for a summer. (laughs) So, Adina, tell us where you are from and kind of where you started your life early on. So I'm originally from West Orange, New Jersey. Um, 
I moved to the city for college and I've been there ever since I graduated three and a half years ago now. Um, and yeah, I started this organization in college and I started full time three years ago. So it's been a crazy journey starting a nonprofit straight out of school. Um, yeah, and now I am back in New Jersey ever since um, the outbreak of COVID. But hopefully August 23rd, I just signed on a new apartment. So hopefully I'll be moving back to the city on August 23rd. And from what I've heard, there are very few people actually in Manhattan right now. I don't know if, that, if yeah. that's true or not. Everyone I know has left. I think it's the one time in my life that I actually feel no sense of FOMO, which is really nice. Like, I don't feel like anyone else is doing something more exciting than I. <laughs> that's right. Maybe in New Zealand, where they're, uh, where they're finished with everything. Yeah, <laughs> can, exactly. orbing now with impunity. But... Uh, Dina, tell me a little bit about your upbringing in West Orange. Was it a strong Jewish background? Did you go to Jewish school and, and things like that? So I actually, I grew up with a pretty strong Jewish background. I went to a modern Orthodox Jewish day school. Is it Kushner around there? Is that the main Yeah, I went there? to Kushner, yeah. Before that, was a, before that was a household name across the world. Exactly. By the way, on Jewish dating apps like J-Swipe and Hinge, literally people would ask me, are your political affiliations based on the fact that you went to Kushner? I'm like, I... Just literally, it happens to be my high school information goes onto my dating apps and people assumed my political opinions based on it. Um, I knew not to go on dates with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good thing that you're engaged now for what you told me off air. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you grew up in West Orange. What was the community like there in, in New Jersey? Really open. Um, and I think it really influenced a lot of my Jewish identity today. Um, just as like a, a kind of very material example. But on like a typical Shabbat afternoon, like all kids were hanging out and running into each other's houses. Some kids wore kippahs, some didn't. Moms would hang out and talk to each other. Some moms would be wearing like jeans and t-shirt on Shabbat and other moms would be wearing like long skirts and their hair covered. And it just didn't really make a difference. Um, and I think being a part of such a diverse and open community really helped me form my Jewish identity in a really positive way. Did you get involved? I know we're going to talk about the nonprofit work, but were you involved early on in any kind of social action, what we call chesed, you know, kindness experiences? Yeah. So I was always very active in school um, and I was always creating things. Like when I was in eighth grade, I was like, the school doesn't have a cheerleading team. So I created a cheerleading team, you know, in a Jewish day school, which was uncommon. And like, we would go to all the games on the buses, like wearing like long sleeves and skirts, but we really had, and we brought in a real cheerleading coach. Do you remember any and of your cheers? Any, any still? Uh... <laughs> it was so long ago. Oh, come on, Adina. You can give, give us one. Come on. <laughs> I know. I know. I no, Kushner. Like, <laughs> exactly. They were like very specific claps. They're, I learned a lot about cheer specifically. Um, and then in high school, I ran a three-on-three basketball tournament that raised money for charity. On Fridays, I would organize um, visits to the senior home on Fridays with kids in my class. When I was a senior in high school, I actually created a senior prom for senior citizens. Um, so it was like the first prom that our high school ever had, but it was at a senior home. Um, Did they have I, to go with their, uh, with their current spouse or could they like take another person from down the hall? So actually every, <laughs> uh, every student who came 
like had a rose and all the guys gave it to an old lady oh, and all the sweet. girls gave it to an old man. Um, so yeah, so I was always active and I always say that, um, and this no blame on like parents, schools, teachers. I just think that if I was a guy doing this, it would be like, Oh, he's such an entrepreneur, like send him to business school. Uh -huh. Um, and as a female, it was like, Oh, look, she does think she cares about the world she should go to social work school. Interesting. So I actually got my uh, bachelor's in social work going on to get a one-year program master's in social work, which, you know, I think really, and I'll, I'll talk about it soon, led me to starting the nonprofit that I did. But I always, you know, I speak at a lot of high schools now and I always warn girls. I'm like, if you're doing a lot, like if you're doing things that are, you know, creating events and program and chesed oriented, it doesn't mean that it, you're just, you know, like, a nice Jewish girl who does things and really push themselves to see themselves as business owners. Um, because there are so many women in, you know, and girls really in schools and Jewish community who are really creating things and people see it as like a nice chesed thing that they're doing as opposed to like, wow, this, you know, girl has a business sense, has a business mind, can figure out how to market, sell, create, um, whether it's for a charity or not. Um, so I have a lot of opinions based on, you know, just, the way men and women are perceived in that sense. Interesting. Very interesting. So now did you do the um, common sort of uh, year after uh, high school in Israel that a lot of kids in modern Orthodox schools do or? Yeah. So I, yeah. I actually did. I went to a, a seminary called Mahomayan, which I actually hated. I left halfway. It's a great school. Wasn't for me. Um, I, it, seminary wasn't the place for me. I actually ended up moving with my grandmother in Jerusalem and creating my own program. Like my parents were kind of like, yeah, you can leave, but create a schedule for yourself. So twice a week in the mornings, I took art classes that I found other two days a week in the morning. I took classes at part days. One day a week, I organized a trip for any of my friends who wanted to ditch seminary or yeshiva that day. In the afternoons, I volunteered a few different places and I I, once a week, I took swing dancing classes, and I really created like an entire schedule. Um, and we joke to this day that I created Machon Adina. Machon Adina, I was going Machon Lichtman or something. It's nice that <laughs> exactly. you had your grandmother. You had your grandmother living there. Yeah, no, I I wouldn't have been able to do it without her living there. I probably what, what neighborhood was she in? Um, she was in like right near the Imbal Hotel, like off Emmaker Fame German Colony. Awesome. Yeah, beautiful. Um. She was in the Pinsker building, if that means anything to you. I don't know that building, but that's great. <laughs> what did you dislike about seminary? What was, you know, most people come out, that was like the, you know, the year of their lives. You know, what was, yeah. what was I challenging? Think I, I think I grew up in a pretty laxed environment. Like, I was a good kid. Like, I came from like a small town where everybody knew each other. Everyone was super warm and friendly. And like, I came to seminary where it was like supposed to be your year of independence. And it was like, all of a sudden, I had to have a curfew like my parents never gave me a, a curfew you know what I mean like I had to like beg for permission to go to like my sister-in-law's wedding you know like there were just a lot of things that just felt it, it infantilizing didn't yeah and I think also part of it was you know I'm a very spiritual person which is why I chose the school um but there it lacked an intellectual approach which is fine that was just like their approach for the school but I was looking for something that had spirituality and had an intellectual approach um and it didn't really have that it was like a lot of they call it fluff you fluffier, know fluffier class yeah. inspirational content not yeah. as not as scholarly which sustains for like 
a week, a month, but not, sure. not a year. Yeah. So why did you, I mean, people, you're not the first person ever to uh, struggle with their, with their choice of a school. Why did you not transfer to a different school? I mean, you did transfer to Maconadina, but why did you get a previously established school where you could have gotten maybe some more intellectual rigor uh, that you would have enjoyed? I think, I think at that point I was like a little bit done. I was kind of like, I know what I want. I want to learn. I want to paint. I want to spend time with my grandmother. I want to, like, there were just like a lot of things that I knew I wanted. Um, and I, I wasn't going to get that in other school. There were other schools that had more hours in the classroom, but I didn't want more hours in the classroom. I just wanted the hours in the classroom to be more serious. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So you left yeah. there and I think you came afterwards too. You mentioned NYU, right? Yes. Yeah. Why, why um, NYU? NYU had a five-year social work program and a really strong Jewish community and close enough to my parents who didn't want me to go farther than an hour away, <laughs> which I wasn't running. If I really wanted to go someplace else, they would have been totally open to it, but they were kind of like, why not go so close? And, and you also wanted school. to make sure you were attending the, the most expensive school in the country. That's oh, probably one 100%. of your criteria. <laughs> By the way, my parents make fun of me to this day because, you know, they sent me an MRA. They're like, as long as you, you know, we're paying a lot of money to so just come out with like a nice, Jewish, very rich husband from NYU. That's right. I end up marrying, well, going to be married to someone from my hometown. And we only start <laughs> dating 10 years after high school. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he's great. So. Well, at least, at least as a social worker, you'll make uh, a cra- or a nonprofit, you know, where you'll make crazy amounts of money to justify the uh, expensive e- degrees. Exactly. <laughs> I think every day they're like, and also like, as I mentioned, like I've always kind of been like a, a self-starter. So I actually started a, a different company while I was in college in my sophomore year um, before I had started Knock Knock Give a Sock. And like, it was started with like three friends who we each had different dreams. One was becoming a chef, one was becoming a nurse. I was, you know, it, going into social work. So it fizzled out after like six months. But we actually had like 40 clients. We started a company called Create a Date where we would plan these dates. Um, people would fill out online how much they were willing to spend it was only for people based in New York city, how much they wanted to spend and anything they absolutely would not do. And what day they were available. We would tell them to meet us at like 23rd and third, you know, and someone <laughs> would meet them with a package that has their entire date. So it's a surprise for both of them. Um, and we tell them on adventures throughout like New York Fear city. Factor or something. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, cute, like get to know the couple game. Like they were fun. That's great. Did any, any long-term relationships come out of that? So we, we didn't set people up. Okay. We created dates ah, for couples so people, that were already couples together. already together. Got it. And you would give them something like fresh and new to, to do together. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. And you would charge per yeah per day. My parents are like the one for profit idea that you had. Why didn't you stick with it? You know? <laughs> That's so funny. But I was I always joke that you know the expensive NYU. There's two. Um, so I work at Maryland for my, or in my, uh, my non-podcasting day job, the job that pays. And uh, two of our schools are GW and NYU. And I'm always you know, teasing the two of them. They go back and forth, I think, between vying for the most expensive school in the country. Um, yeah. So I like, to, I like to give them a hard time. You know, Maryland, a nice $9,000 a year in-state tuition. You know, should have gone. Should have gone. That's like uh, that's like a, a week of lunches at NYU, I think, or something it's like that. Crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's uh, crazy. I don't know what my parents were thinking, but <laughs> I actually went to NYU for the first time ever last year. I've you know heard obviously so much about it, and my colleagues working there forever, and but I never actually been into the like the center, and I went to the the kosher cafeteria, 
It's a great cafeteria. I didn't even eat there. I went there to do mincha, which was really funny because this is like, I'm sure you know, like this tiny little room. And then all of a sudden they stop eating and they like pull out these mechitzas, you know, these dividers to yeah. make it to a, like an Orthodox synagogue. And they, they block off like the little space and then the, it was wild. And they just It's crazy. Drank. Yeah. And sometimes I'm like still online getting food and I see everyone like praying towards me and I'm like, this is a weird experience. <laughs> they hold up your hamburger, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's not exactly. that good. It's not worthy of your, uh, of your exactly. worship. Exactly. <laughs> but that was my, that was my one NYU experience uh, ever. So it seemed like a nice, nice enough place. But uh, yeah. so you were in NYU and it sounds like you started getting into already the nonprofit sector. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of that experience. So I was very involved, and even at NYU, I was on the Hillel like Chesed committee. And we had one night where I organized an event where we made sandwiches for people experiencing homelessness. We brought them all to the shelter, and then me and two friends, we actually decided to take, you know, 10, 15 sandwiches to give out to people on the street. One guy right outside my building named Diego said to me, ma'am, it's so nice you're giving out sandwiches, but one thing I could actually really use are a pair of socks. You know, we wear four or five pairs of socks a night. It gets really cold in the winter. Uh, do you happen to have a pair of socks? And I said, no, but I'll see what I can do. So I went up to my dorm room that night. I opened my drawer. I saw I had pink socks, polka dotted socks. They weren't really going to fit my new friend, Diego. And I decided to go and knock on every door on my floor. And in about 15 minutes, I got over 40 pairs of socks. The next morning, I had another 30 pairs of socks outside my door from people who were like doing laundry or didn't have right then. Um, and that was really the night Knock Knock Give a Sock was born. After that, um, I decided to announce in every classroom that I was, you know, attending class in, hey, professor, can I make an announcement? I want to get a list of everyone in the different dorms who want, you know, so I would say if you want to collect socks, if you want to be a floor representative sign up on this piece of paper. Like I literally put like names and email addresses. So at that point we had already like 15, 20 buildings. Then I figured out, okay, I need to get one person from each floor in the building. So I went to the dining hall, all the different dining halls at that point, like going around that pen and paper, trying to get people would send out a mass email. Then, you know, at that point we had, you know, 30 floors already committed from different buildings. I made a little Facebook page. By that point, I had a couple of friends in Columbia and YU and Cooper Union and Baruch, all who were like, hey, we'd love to get involved. We'd love to do this. So, you know, by the end of that winter, we had gotten, you know, five, six college campuses involved. By the next year, you know, that fall, I decided we got 25 college campuses involved. All in the New York area? All, no, at that point, it already spread beyond the New York area. We even had kids in Maryland. Um, by the time I was a senior, we had spread to over 25 college campuses and collected over 50,000 pairs of socks. That's a lot of socks. Yeah. And I actually, to me, it was just a little project. And then the problem was no sock companies would send us socks unless we became a 501c3, a formal legalized nonprofit organization. My sister was a lawyer at the time, so she got her law firm to give us um, tax exemption status which was funny. She works at like one of the top law firms in New York city and it's like super fancy and serious. And I would like walk in there, this little college kid and like my jeans and t-shirt and be like, Hey, I'm here. And like, I had like four corporate lawyers sitting all around me, which <laughs> normally would bill like $500 an hour. And they're just like doing pro bono, like for knock, knock, give a sock. Like it was a very funny experience in my life. 
Um, but anyways, we became a 501c3 so that we can get a warehouse instead of my parents' garage. Um, and so it kind of fell into my lap by accident. And it was still like a, always a plan to be a project. Um, but by the time I was a senior, people kind of thought I was the home, like the expert on homelessness. So people would say, come on, Adina, like, why don't they just get jobs? Like, aren't most of them alcoholics? Aren't most of them choosing to be homeless? A lot of the stereotypes around homelessness. Mental illness, yeah. Mental illness, exactly. And by the way, on that note, like, when it comes to homelessness, everyone says, like, mental illness. But when we talk about mental health issues, we never say mental illness, right? When we talk about, especially on college campus, we talk about mental health awareness, right? Mental health issues. But homelessness, we talk about mental illness, right? And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stereotyping and stigmas and especially being on a college campus where it was so liberal, right? The way we talk about every minority, we're so careful about the words we use to be PC, you know? And to me, it was like homelessness wasn't a part of that category. You can be nice and help the homeless, but there were signs that you'd see to come volunteer with us, feed the homeless. And I'm like, imagine if you saw a sign today that said feed the blacks or feed the Jews. Like, you'd be like, there's, you feed the animals. You know what I mean? Like, I think the Jews, unfortunately, might get away with that one in some places, sadly, but (laughs) not to get political, but yeah. (laughs) But but there was just this disconnect when it came to the humanization around homelessness and stereotypes, right? Don't they all have mental illness? Aren't they all choosing to be homeless? Out of 60,000 people in New York City who experience homelessness on a given night, 25,000 are children. Right, something that we don't think about. Street homelessness in New York City is actually only 5%, which means 95% are actually sleeping in shelters or in cars or in motels or, you know, five families in one tiny apartment because they're all kind of sick, right? So homelessness is actually very different than what people think it is. Um, People see their neighbors on the street and they think, that's what homelessness is, right? It's like literally the definition of stereotyping, but it's what we're exposed to. Um, so my senior year of college, I decided to combat this stigma and bring 50 of my college classmates who were living in dorms and 50 of our neighbors who were living in local shelters to have dinner side by side. And no one was allowed to serve one another. Um, it was all like family style, like each table had food on it. And we had icebreaker questions like, what was your favorite food growing up and who made it for you? Or which family member do you get along with most and why? Right? Really getting to deeper questions. We even had a question, does God or spirituality play a role in your life? If so, how? Um, and by the end of this dinner, college students were coming over to me saying, Adina, we couldn't tell who was homeless and who's, who was not. We were meeting moms who had three kids who couldn't afford childcare, dads who got out of prison, couldn't get jobs afterwards, people working minimum wage jobs, but that doesn't get you out of the shelter system. So all of a sudden, homelessness had a name and a face and a story. And all of a sudden, this project of Knock Knock Give a Sock, I realized wasn't, you know, if I can bring this to the corporate space, these type of events, that it wasn't just going to be a little side project. Um, so today, just to kind of give you um, what the mission of Knock Knock Give a Sock is today, is um, our mission is to humanize homelessness one sock at a time by turning transactions into interactions. 
So we go to companies like JP Morgan, WeWork, Salesforce. We get these companies to do a stock collection in their office. But after they do a stock collection, we then bring their employees and people living in local shelters to have dinner side by side in their offices. And the reason why our name is not going to give a stock is because I can't email Goldman Sachs and be like, hey, we have this idea where we want to bring your employees and people living in shelters to have dinner side by side. It's very easy to email someone lower down, you know, at Goldman Sachs. We'll be like, yeah, that's a great idea to bring to my office. And they bring it to their HR people. Of course, they'll set up a bin with a stock check. Then we're already in touch with the right people. And then we can transition to one of these meet your neighbor events, um, which have been really empowering. And we do around 35 to 40 of these a year. Incredible. So just to back up a little bit, when you first had all those socks, what did you do with them? Did you need 50,000 pairs of socks? Um, so yeah, so we brought them to different shelters. We emailed different shelters. We emailed different drop-in centers and saying, hey, do you need socks? And no one said no. Is that still a part of what you do? Is that still a part of the mission? Yes. So, so I would say today we have three legs of our organization. One is, and I'll, I'll go through all of them. One is socks. One is meet your neighbor events and one are community events. So socks, we distribute about half a million pairs of socks a year. Majority of them coming from actually sock companies. And then just because companies don't donate that much um, of the socks. And we also hire people living in local shelters to distribute the socks and pick them up from different companies and drop them off and go to our warehouse and distribute them. The second element of what we do are these meet your neighbor lunches and dinners, which we do with corporate offices um, around New York City. And we've even done it in other cities. Um, and the third element are these community events, which are basically we have two. One is a huge holiday carnival for over 300 kids who live in homeless shelters. And the second is a music festival in which we have a concert where we bring three artists who live in homes and three artists who live in shelters to perform on stage. I was just thinking, you know, if you do, do these things with Wall Street, like you mentioned, it's like a socks for stocks. There exactly. Exactly. We get that one all the time. They're like, and by the way, when I, people have heard about us, but they don't know, like, if someone mentions us in a conversation, they're like, not going to give a stock. You're working exactly. with JP Morgan. Like, they're very confused. I'm like, nope, socks. Well, you could do that too to, for fundraising, you know, give over a... Uh, have people give over equity shares to uh, raise money. So, do you work at all? I'm curious if you ever worked with, uh, with Mayor Kay? Yeah, so Mayor Kay actually is one of our, so he would fall under the category of like community events that we do. Yeah. Um, we help, so Mayor Kay, the last two years when he's done his New York City Super Bowl, Super Bowl yeah. party, so he'll always go onto the street and, and, you know, invite a few neighbors from the street. But, you know, he has a party filled with like, 50, 60 people living in shelters. So actually he works with us and we bring buses of our neighbors coming from local shelters. Amazing. Can you tell, talk a little bit about the language that you, uh, that you use around, around this particular issue? Because when I interviewed Mayor Kay already a while ago, but, um, and now you as well, kind of a, there's a vocabulary of you know, people experiencing homelessness as opposed to homeless people, which you kind of touched on before. And also you keep referring to them as your neighbors on the street, which I think is very... Uh, you know, very, it seemed, I imagine, deliberate and, and very um, intentional. Can you talk a little bit about language, why that language matters and where that kind of comes from? How do you, yeah. how did you sort of develop that vocabulary? So I think part of it was my dad, for many years, ran a Jewish organization called Yachad, um, which helps, you know, children and adults with special needs. And he would always, growing up, you know, you never say Down syndrome kid. You never say an autistic kid, right? Because there's so much more than that, you know? Like, 
They're a kid who has autism. They're a child who has Down syndrome, right? They're so much more than their situation, right? Um, so when it comes to homelessness, and even more so, homelessness is, is transitional for most people. For the most part, yeah, there are kids who are born living in homeless shelters, but most people aren't born homeless. And the hope is that they're not going to be homeless their entire lives, right? So when we use language experiencing homelessness, or I saw my neighbor who was homeless, you know, like, it's just a different way of people seeing that person. They're seeing a person. By the way, because it's unfamiliar, all of a sudden, everyone's ears kind of like turn, right? Everyone's like, kind of like, wait, what? Our neighbors on the street. These are different ways, right? They are our neighbors, right? Look up the dictionary definition of neighbor, right? not living in the house next year, living in your neighborhood. So I think part of it is one, language really changes the way we think. And two, it's so alarming for people. Yet when it comes to so many different things, we've become so progressive. Yet somehow when it comes to homelessness, like people aren't worried like that you're being offensive when you say homeless people. People don't think twice about it. Um, But creating this politically correctness around homelessness actually allows people to see this group as a vulnerable group uh, more so (laughs) aren't people who are homeless dangerous and actually it happens to be that more people on the street are victims of violence from drunk college kids who are like bum get a job you know like i can't even tell me how many times i've been sitting with a neighbor on the street who's experiencing homelessness and people have said obnoxious comments to them so it's just really creating awareness around this really vulnerable population. And by the way, when it comes to all the different issues, the majority of people who experience homelessness are actually, you know, people who are black. And even more than that, people who really get to the point where they are experiencing homelessness, I mean, anyone who looks at them and says, man, this guy is lazy, man, this guy is trying. I mean, nobody wants to be homeless. You ask any person who's on the street, Oh, do you want to be homeless? No one wants to be homeless. And these are the people who have experienced the most pain, the most abuse. People who are on the street, for the most part, don't have family or network that they can lean on, who are struggling, who have grown up in homes that have either been really broken or, you know, experienced poverty. So it's just, they, these are the most stepped on people. And I'll bring up a little bit just my own Jewish values. It's interesting. There's a concept in Parshat Re'eh where it says it's our job to extend our hand and keep on giving. And then it's followed up with the line that says poverty will not cease to exist. It's not our job to fix everyone's life and to fix all the problems around poverty. It's our job to actually continuously give. And one more piece of Torah that I'll bring in is when we read Yeshayahu on Yom Kippur, right? We, we read this verse of like, is this the fast that I wanted where you're wearing sackcloth and ashes? No, the fast that I desire is one in which you're feeding your brothers and sisters and you're clothing, you know, those in need. But it actually goes one step further. It says, do not turn away from your own flesh. And what does that mean? We're talking about poverty. What do you mean do not turn around from your own flesh? But the fact is we're supposed to look at every single person on the street as 
you know, like as our, as the image of God, but also seeing ourselves within them, which I think is beautiful. And one last thing, and then I'm, I'm done with the director, but I forgot to mention Parshat Ray. It says, do not harden your heart. The only other place where we talk about do not harden your heart is when it comes to Paro hardening his heart in terms of letting the Jewish people go. So now when we're talking about giving tzedakah and giving charity, it says do not harden your heart when it talks about people in poverty. But, and this is what I tell people every day, I harden my heart every day. We all do. You walk on a subway and you assume that the guy telling his story is a lie and he must be making it up because he has a nice iPhone. We see the guy in the street and we're like, oh, he, he's not walking so straight. He's probably drunk, and that's probably why we shouldn't give him money. We harden our hearts every day when God specifically tells us when it comes to poverty not to harden our heart. Um, and I think we make up excuses to not give all the time. And I do it myself all the time. How do you respond to some of the stigmas that people do say, you know, in, in a more say intellectual way, you know, kind of like a factual way, right? So people say there's the mental health issues or they're going to buy drugs, all these kinds of things, which some of them, you know, is there any basis to any of these, you know, statements? And, and if there is, are there ways to mitigate them or to kind of give in a way that offsets those, those possible downsides? Yeah. So one thing that I always talk about, which tends to shock people, the first statistic I ever give is 50% of kids who age out of the foster care system will end up homeless within six months, right? How many kids go through the system and don't end up adopted? 50% of those kids end up homeless within six months, right? It's a problem with our system. It's a problem with the foster care homes that they're going to. It's a problem with how they're treated in between. It's just these are kids who feel like they've been rejected by society, right? Many people, I, I like to give the example, I always say, think about one person in, in your community that you grew up with who might have had a little bit of trouble in school, maybe not the best behavior, maybe really couldn't do well in school, but like was able to end up like living at home, never quite got his life together, but was able to get a job in one of the local stores in your community and live with their parents for, you know, basically the rest of their lives. We all know one or two kids who have had that. But if you grew up in poverty, your family can't just have another, you know, mouth to feed in the house, especially if there's not the opportunities there. Um, so those are two examples that I like to give. A lot of mental health issues are exacerbated after one already experiences homelessness. And most people in America live paycheck to paycheck. You know, I run a nonprofit. I live paycheck to paycheck. Now I'm not worried about the next paycheck coming, but I pay Manhattan rent. But I know that if things don't work out with my organization and I have to stop working, I can move with, in with my parents, right? Networks are really important and supportive networks. That's how so many of us are where we are. Um, so these are a few of the examples that I like to give. And also, we all, whether you grew up in a really rich community or you grew up in a poor community, we all know people who have ended up in rehab and ended up in addic you know, with addiction. But if your family has the money to send you to a really nice rehab and then you stay home in your parents' nice house until you figure it out, it's a different situation than one in which you grew up in poverty. Also, a lot of people who live in inner city areas um, and difficult neighborhoods, the easiest way for them to get money is, you know, to buy and sell drugs. And they don't necessarily have people in their, you know, family who have been able to instruct them otherwise. 
So these are a few of the examples that I like to put out and just say, we all know somebody who's suffered mental health. We all know people who have suffered addiction. We all know people who have just needed more time to get together. We all know people who have had learning disabilities. But when you partner that with poverty, it's just a different narrative and it's just a different story. Um, and that's really the light that I like to bring into it. Do people push back ever and say, hey, what about you know personal responsibility? And I, mean, I think we're finding this debate a lot going on now in the, in the broader racial tensions of, of the country without, again, getting into too hot of a political issue. But you know, people on the one hand talking about systemic you know, challenges and, and abuses, things like that, and other people saying, hey, what about you know, where's the agency, where's the personal responsibility, and so forth. Do you see that debate? Yeah, so yes and no. Because if you look at any research, first of all, the amount of money it costs per person experiencing homelessness living in shelters, the government spends way more money to put them in shelters than if you were to put them in housing. Now, there, there are two things about this. One, we're spending more money. The government is spending more money on the police, on jails, on shelters, on food every day by putting people in homeless shelters. No one can argue that. Anyone who looks at any statistics, it is clear that the government spends more money every year per person experiencing homelessness by putting them in a shelter as opposed to giving them housing. The second thing is once you give someone housing, they're more likely to get up and get themselves back on their feet. You know, we can't say that every single person will get an apartment and then get a job and get things together. But for the most part, you give someone housing, they'll be able to get on their feet a lot more. Another thing is, there are different shelters. There are single women shelters, single men shelters, and family shelters. Those are three broad categories. There are many more in between. There are emergency, long-term, et cetera. Single women shelters, if you go into a single woman shelter, the average age is 60 years old. The reason for this, and that's not the family shelters who have young women and children, right? Which we can understand that category as well, right? Not being able to afford childcare. But you talk to the majority of these women, these are women who have worked minimum wage jobs their entire lives, provided for their families. They finally turn, you know, mid 50s, 60s. They can't work anymore for health conditions or they're just older. They got fired, whatever it is. No one's going to hire them anymore. They get evicted from their apartments. This is a large population of women, you know. I do these dinners all the time at J.P. Morgan. You literally see women coming in with walkers and canes from homeless shelters where they have to share a room with 15 other women. And it's all really about putting a face to homelessness. And listen, there are people who take advantage of the system and there are going to be people who take advantage of every system. But that's not the majority. And if we think about issues that lead towards homelessness as a whole, it just, what are your safety nets? And that's the difference between someone who's homeless and someone who's not. So if you could wave a magic wand, if you actually had the power of the namesake of your high school, <laughs> and you could be, you know, if you could propose any policy change, what, what would it be? How would you ameliorate this crisis? How would you address it? Um, really, it would be housing first. Getting everyone housing. That's the solution towards ending homelessness. It's what they do in a lot of countries where you see low rates of homelessness. It's because they're given apartments, they're given places to live, their own space. 
And are those clustered together or are they kind of spread among functional members of society? Because this is, we had the problem in the United States of batching people together. I think that's what happened in a lot of projects and things like that. You ended up with a, a sort of a self-perpetuating cycle. So would you kind of disperse people? Um, and- I would definitely um, advocate for dispersing people, especially people who have children especially families. It's extremely important. You know, maybe you have like people who are like all in their 60s and 70s who have apartments, maybe maybe cluster that group together so that they can be people checking in on these communities more often. Can have bridge games going. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but for families, it should definitely be dispersed. Just because of the school access, schools in the area, access to equal education. So you think that that one intervention alone would actually create sort of a domino effect yeah. And by the way, if tomorrow they made a law, every single person's going to get housing, you're still going to see some people on the street. That's without a doubt. But again, street homelessness is 5% of homelessness. And the majority of people you see on the street actually are suffering from mental health issues or are petrified of the shelters and have been abused in the shelters. So you have those two groups of people who are scared of the shelters. Been so many people who are like, yeah, I got evicted by, from my apartment. And then I spent like a couple nights at like a couple of different friends' houses. And then I kind of felt bad doing that. I couldn't really do that anymore. And then I was like, slept on like a park bench. And then I just, you know, like they don't identify it as homeless until a few nights into it. They're kind of like, wait. Um, and it's hard to go into the shelter after that. It becomes scary. Why is it that we don't provide this kind of housing? Any, any idea what the, where that comes from? Um, I think it comes from, listen, definitely in the short term, it would be more expensive, but in the long term, we're spending more money. It's, it's putting a bandaid on the issue. That's what's really happening. And especially with a lot of gentrification, homelessness is becoming worse and worse, and it's going to be awful after this pandemic. But again, it's, we're putting band-aids on issues. And that's, that's how I describe it to people, right? Like you need stitches, but you know, it's kind of just keeping to put on new band-aids, bigger shelters, more shelters. Um, and that's how I describe the issue. It's, and there aren't enough people who are invested in the issue long-term. And I always say, you know, when it comes to different social issues, there have really been calls to action. There have been allies, there have been movements. When it comes to homelessness, like, there hasn't been a strong, like... A groundswell of support. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so we're hoping that just even by doing these Meet Your Neighbor events, we're creating advocates and communities, you know, so that when you hear that a shelter is going to be built in your community or you hear that housing is going to be built in your community, you won't be the person in your town hall meeting to say, no, they're dangerous, right? You're going to be like, wait, actually, most of them are elderly or like most of them are actually children. These different. Um, do you sense that there is any political will anywhere to, to do something more comprehensive about this? And if not, have you considered moving in that direction where instead of doing kind of the smaller events and things, which are great, obviously making, I'm sure, a major impact. But if you could affect systemic change, then of course that would be much broader. There are really brilliant people working on systemic change. There really are. And there have been strides and there have been, you know, things have been accomplished. It's not like nothing has moved. That being said, there are people who are coming up with like these brilliant concepts around these issues. Um, And there are people who are actually, you know, providing services for people who are experiencing homelessness. But there's nobody who's actually introduced, like people who are experiencing homelessness, like especially if they're living in the shelters, they don't talk to anyone who's not homeless. They just see themselves as homeless. That's all, you know, and to actually 
be able to walk around. Imagine if you're someone who's living in a homeless shelter and you walk around your community, your city, and you see the JP Morgan building. You're like, I know someone who works there, right? Oh, I see, I see Salesforce. I know someone who works there. You feel a part of your community. I always give the example. If you were to work, walk around in the South Bronx, you're not going to feel so comfortable. You're not going to feel like you know people there. Like you're, and by the way, for people who are living in inner city areas who come to our richer neighborhoods, they feel the same way. You know, they feel like they're in this like alien community that knows nothing about them. They don't know anyone there. And creating that bridge is actually providing relationships, friendship, creating people who might at the end of the year give their money to a cancer research foundation, might want to put more money towards homelessness, right? And for the person who's living in a homeless shelter, they feel like they're cared about. And by the way, people who tell their stories, people have incredible, crazy, wild stories about experiencing homelessness. And the only people who hear them are the social workers, caseworkers, people who they're trying to get housing from, who are just like, they're another kind of, they don't care. You know, they don't feel like their story is really being listened to. You tell someone who's a banker on Wall Street your story when they've never experienced anything close to that. It's really, you feel like your voice is heard and amplified. I want to ask you if you could share any stories of maybe, you know, we call it in the, in the Jewish world, Shaduchim, right? Any, any connections, any matches, people who have got to know each other through this? Maybe have they stayed in touch? Have they formed relationships? Anything that you've seen come out? Yeah. So I, by the way, my favorite thing is I always send like these surveys out. Most people never get back to me, but every once in a while I'll get like a picture on my phone with someone who's out to dinner with Eddie, who they met at a meet your neighbor dinner. And I wouldn't say jobs come out of it, but that's also not the point. Um, But relationships certainly have people stay connected and we leave a contact card on all the tables so that you put your, you have the option to put your name, your phone number, your Instagram, your Facebook, and you email address, so whatever you want to stay connected with. Because not everyone wants to give out their phone number. Not everyone wants to give out their email address. But basically what you want, and I get calls all the time saying like, yeah, John calls me like once every two months just to see how I'm doing, you know? Have you stayed in touch with Diego? So actually for a while I was in touch with Diego. And then like the street corner he was on, I hadn't seen him in months and really years. But he knew that he like was the star of the story of Nagma Givisak. And it actually like two months ago, someone reached out to me saying that they were giving haircuts to people on the street. And I took a picture of this guy, Diego, and he was going on and on about Nagma Givisak. I was like, what street? He was like, somewhere in the West Village. Still haven't found him, <laughs> but uh, he's somewhere in the West Village. Oh, man. It's, uh, you know, what's fascinating to me about that origin story, if you could call it that, is that you had a vision of what you wanted to give. You had sandwiches in mind right and you were bringing sandwiches and he didn't want sandwiches he wanted socks it's such a powerful thing we talk about you know chesed and, and kindness from from the jewish perspective i think that's one of the big hallmarks that we talk about is identifying the actual need and not giving what we want to give but giving what actually is needed can you speak to, a little bit to that so it's funny when i was first starting when i used to speak to schools i would give that message exactly because it was before we had done the meet your neighbor events and by the way i would always say you know so often we assume we know what our neighbors want and what our neighbors need but how often do we ask how can i help you what do you need and that's what actually one we empower the communities that we're helping and two we're actually responding to need as opposed to thinking we're doing what we think is nice 
And two, that's actually how I ended up starting my Meet Your Neighbor events partially because I would always ask the audience after I would give these talks. The talks were focused on how not to assume what your neighbors want or need. But then I would ask them, who here can tell me that they've given money, food, or clothing to someone in need? And everyone would raise their hand. And then I would say, who here can tell me the name of one person experiencing homelessness? And almost no one could raise their hand. Um, and that's how I really started to think about there's a disconnect here. How do we help our neighbors in that way? It's good advice anyway, even just in life in general. You're about to get married. So I give you some, some rabbinical marriage, marriage advice, right? That when you, it's not just giving what the other person, what you want to give. It's what they, you know, what they really want, what they need. That's the, 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 the love languages. That's very, become very popular now. It's like people have different needs and our automatic projections aren't necessarily accurate. 100%. How has this all evolved for you? You know, obviously I, I imagine now you've had to get into, as you professionalize this, you've gotten into fundraising and things like that. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of the organization and, and of you and your role within that. Yeah, so I graduated in 2016 um, with my BSW. In 2017, I graduated with my MSW. But I knew right after I got my master's, I would work on this full-time. So during that year, I actually worked a basically full-time job while I was in school. And I was able to save up money. And then the year after that, I had one year to raise $100,000. I was living off my savings and my goal is to raise $100,000 in one year. Wow. And your first year fundraising. My first year fundraising. And it was sink or swim, you know? And I cried so many nights. And I actually, I'm a very, very spiritually connected person. So I'm going to tell a Jewish story along with this. But there were so many nights where I was like, you know, I had till July and it was like March already. And I reached like a third of the amount of fundraising that I needed to do. And I was kind of like doing events and stuff already, but we hadn't. Who set this goal? Was this an arbitrary goal? I mean, it was just your salary, right? My goal was my salary the first year would be $50,000 that year after that. So I wanted to have half towards my salary and half towards, you know, running the organization. You know, I wasn't going to like, I didn't believe in half-assing it. I was going to get it done. And so basically it was like March time already. And I was like so far away from my goal. And my dad, who like believes in me more than anyone, sat me down. He was like, Adina, we need to start talking about like other job opportunities for you because like this isn't sustainable anymore. And I almost thought about it. And I was like, you know what? I can't like this isn't like I'm going through with this. Like, okay, maybe I won't reach the goal, but like, I can't just throw the towel in. I'm not looking for other jobs and doing this on the side. Like I need to do this. We'll figure it out. I'll move home. I don't care. We're going to figure it out. Um, and I believe that that was, you know, if you think about the story of the Exodus, right? Nachshon was the first one to go in and then the, the water parted ways. And it was actually that week's Parsha that week. Like it was like on Monday that my dad had a conversation with me about it. And it was on Thursday that one of my biggest funders had called me and said he wanted to talk and had committed to donate $45,000 for that following year. Wow. Taking us like to 85% of our goal. Incredible. And it was crazy. That week's Parsha was the story of Nachshon, right? And kind of just having the confidence. And I wonder if I didn't have the confidence to like be stubborn and like 
pull through with it if that opportunity would have come. Incredible. So it's mostly private donors as opposed to, let's say, corporate? So it's it's a mix. So this year, um, now we're, we have about between $150,000, $200,000 budget, depending on the year. Um, we're in our third year. I hired two people full-time. We'll get into the COVID afterwards. Um, but this year, we raised around $200,000 in 2019. And most of it, the money is... I would say it's probably 50-50 split between private donors and corporate meet your neighbor events, right? So let's say dinner costs $3,000. We'll charge a company $5,000 to do the event. So we're bringing in revenue off these meet your neighbor events. Tell me a little bit about COVID since you referenced it. Um, Yeah. So, oh, and by the way, sorry, I would say all of our funding is split into thirds, corporate, private, and fundraising events. Got it. Um, COVID hit. And, um, I had, we don't have any revenue coming in because we don't have any meet your neighbor events happening. So that's about a third of our revenue that's been slashed. Funders aren't looking to give to us because we don't really have operations right now. And our gala was supposed to happen June 3rd, which was supposed to bring in another third of our funding. So I had one other employee full-time and one person part-time. I had to let the two of them go. Um, the government funding has been really helpful. There have been some loans. So, you know, we'll probably start doing real events again in December, January time. Um, but yeah, once the world opens up, it still will be another six months before companies start doing events with us. So we pivoted to a knock, knock, give a mask campaign. So we have, you know, donated around 12,000 masks already. But apart from that, I'm staying home with my sister's kids most of the time. Um, and yeah, like I used to be every day, I would be emailing like Guggenheim Partners, Salesforce, Morgan Stanley, right? And now every day, it's like my inbox is junk mail. Um, <laughs> so it's definitely taken a shift. What about people who are living in shelters or on the streets? I imagine they have obviously greater exposure. When it comes to yeah, so so many of them have actually been moved to hotels now. I would say probably like a third of shelters have been moved to hotels. I guess since the hotels anyway have been empty because of there's no tourism. Yeah, but all the shelters that I've worked with, like I've spoken to them, and like many of them have had COVID outbreaks. Most of them had COVID outbreaks. Some of them have had people who passed away. Um, It's been difficult, and it's also a lot, you know, like usually people who are in the shelters, like leave for the day, but there's nothing really open. They can't even use restrooms in other you know, places. So it's just, there's a lot more fighting and a lot of people in the shelters who actually had jobs now don't have jobs. So there's been, it's been bad. In closing, what do you see yourself doing kind of long-term with this? Obviously once things return, hopefully yeah. some semblance of normalcy, where do you want to go? What, what's kind of the next frontier for this organization? So the goal is to continuously turn transactions into interactions, right? That's the, the goal of our organization. Um, the 10-year plan, I would say, is to move Knock Knock Give a Sock into five major cities across America and have program directors in each city who are developing relationships with, you know, local businesses and companies doing these first sock drives and then transitioning them into the Meet Your Neighbor events. So we're not doing anything too radical when we first get to any new community. What are your, uh, what are your next cities? You, got, you, have a, you have your list? So the next city, hopefully, it's funny. We've done them in Tulsa, in Atlanta, in Montreal, 
um, in San Francisco, but I would say my real goal is to bring them to San Francisco next because there is such a stigma. And the truth is San Francisco has the majority street homelessness, but they do have shelters. And how do we change? We, we need to see our neighbors on the street as humans and as people. And so working with the shelters in San Francisco, because there's so many people who are trying to get into the job force um, that even though they do have the largest street homelessness population, so many of them are just like, oh, you, there's so many people who like go to Africa and like volunteer in developing countries and then they get off the plane. And they like walk over their neighbor, you know, um, and that happens in cities across America, particularly San Francisco and Los Angeles are pretty bad. So hopefully there. Let me know when Washington makes the cut. Thank you. I will. I will. <laughs> we could try to make some connections here. Incredible. Where can people learn about the organization besides uh, just Googling it? Anything that people can follow on social media? Yeah, we have knock, knock, give a sock on Instagram and kkgs.org or knock, knock, give a sock.org. The A was uh, absorbed, I guess, in the. Uh... Yeah, yeah, because it just looked like KK Gas. I was going to say KK Gas. Be like, ah. Yeah, yeah, it looks you're weird. An, you're an oil weird. company or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had, we had to. We, exactly, <laughs> we had to drop the A. There you go. It's okay. You can get away with that. I'm, I'm a big acronym specialist, and I you can drop the A. It's one of the unofficial acronym rules. So you have my blessing. Uh, Adina Lichtman, founder of Knock Knock Give a Sock and a tremendous champion for people experiencing homelessness and a real, uh, dare I say, Kiddush Hashem, someone sanctifying God's name in the world. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Be well. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.